Remember back to that ancient time, not so long ago, when um, President Bill Clinton was in trouble and eventually was impeached. And as I recall, I'm sure I don't remember all the details quite exactly, um, a major part of that impeachment was that he lied under oath. And when he defended himself, he made the justification that is depends on what you mean by is. It all depends on what the meaning of is is. Remember that? And we all thought only a lawyer could split that hair. Well, lawyers are in good company with theologians and what the meaning of in is. This passage of Scripture, Romans 8, is largely about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that He is in the believer. Because He is in the believer, we are not, as believers, in the flesh. You can't be in two places at once, unless you're omnipresent. And you may be spiritual, but you are not that spiritual. Only God can be in two places at once, because He is everywhere. So you can't be in the Spirit and be in the flesh. And if you are in the Spirit, you are therefore not in the flesh. Because the Spirit of God is in you, and you are in Him, Romans 8 says, He is at work in you. He's not just there because He couldn't find a better place to live. But He is in you, and He is at work in you. That single truth, the Spirit of God is in the believer and at work in the believer, is then the basis for the so then of verse 12. So then, brethren, we are, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So basically, that's all of this first 17 verses of Romans 8. The Spirit of God is in you, and He is at work in in you, and therefore you are not under obligation to the flesh. Why is that significant? For one major reason, because Paul demonstrated in Romans 7 that you can be defeated as a Christian by the flesh, to where the state of your experience would seem to be that the only thing you ever do is what the flesh dictates. And so it seems very much that you are under obligation to the flesh. But you remember Romans chapter 7, particularly in verses 14 to 24, had 5 had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. So now he wants us to move us to the presence of the Holy Spirit, his ministry in the believer, and then the conclusion of his indwelling presence is you do not have to do what the flesh tells you to do. The, 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 the experience of defeat does not have to be the experience of the Christian. Unless you live as a Christian according to the flesh. can't live in it, but you can live according to it, which we'll get to and explain that a little bit more. But if you live according to it, then you will experience not only defeat, but Paul will say here, death will be our experience. We have the Spirit in us. And we are in the Spirit. And He is at work in us. So what does in mean? 
I have a, a friend, I count as a good friend, a theologian, many advanced degrees. Um, he's written on this subject, and he came to the conclusion that in does not mean in. That in means relationship, in means intimacy, but in does not mean within, is his conclusion. I don't agree with him, but he's a lot smarter than I am. But we can say this, based upon Romans 8 and principally the upper room discourse, especially Romans chapter, I mean, sorry, John 14, 15, and 16. I said last Sunday that the one chapter of Scripture that has most to say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is Romans 8. But there are other portions of Scripture that have more to say about the actual person of the Holy Spirit. And that would be Romans 14 through 17. And just to look at a couple things here, and so you hold your finger in both places, Romans chapter 8, but also John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and, and the ministry, the person of the Holy Spirit, and some of what he does is mentioned here in chapter 14. So beginning in verse 16, I will ask the Father, Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper. So in the same sense in which Jesus is a helper to us, I am going to ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. So this will be a person. And then He explains Himself, verse 17, that is, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you, and He will be, what does your Bible say? In you. So it's, so it's not just a question of proximity that he will be near us, with us, though certainly to have him indwelling us is a very close state. That's as close as you can get to be actually, literally in. This is a better thing, what Jesus is describing, than what the disciples had with Jesus. How do we know that? Flip over real quickly to chapter 16 of John. Verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 7, 16, 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper should not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is a better kind of relationship. And I kind of like the idea of Jesus walking around on earth where I can see him. And we've all thought, man, if I could just be with him and see him, that would be everything. That day will come when Jesus will literally be on the earth. We will literally be here with him. We will see him with our eyes. But until that time comes, the state that we have now, the relationship we have now with God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is a better relationship than what the disciples had. Because the disciples couldn't all have the physical Jesus at the same time. And there were times when three of the disciples would go up on the mountain with Jesus. Well, when they were up on the mountain with Jesus, the other nine guys weren't with Jesus because he could physically only be in one place at one time in his humanity. He couldn't be with those disciples physically while he was with other disciples in a different place. And so Jesus is saying, this is a whole better deal. It is to your advantage. So as good as the disciples had to see God incarnate on earth, 
the relationship that God has given us with the indwelling Holy Spirit is better than what they had. It is more advantageous. It is a more intimate relationship. It is not just nearer, it is more intimate. And so it speaks of proximity in this, in does. It speaks of, of intimacy. It means that we have been made one with him. But it also speaks of permanency. He's never going to leave us. Look what it says in verse 18 of John 14. He will be in you, and then verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. And in that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. I will not leave you as orphans. This is a permanent condition. When the Holy Spirit comes, then you will be indwelt, and nothing will ever separate this relationship. In John chapter 10, he says that you are in my hand and in my Father's hand, and nothing shall ever remove you from my hand. In Romans chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, we'll see that Jesus, Paul says that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. So to have the Spirit of God in us speaks of His nearness, but it speaks of intimacy, it speaks of permanency. The only way for this relationship to be broken, to have the relationship of being in, means that something, one of the two parties, has to die. It's the only way. And this is true of when we are in, have the Spirit in us, and we are in the Spirit, or even if we are in the flesh. So the word in, all of this pertains to both categories. If I am in the Spirit, or if I am in the flesh, it applies equally. If I am in the flesh, proximity, intimacy, oneness, and permanency. The only way to get out of the flesh is to die. This is why God has figured this for us in our own humanity. When, when a person dies, when his body dies, his soul is removed from the body. And so really what animates us is the soul. The spirit and the soul, the immaterial part of man, is what animates him. And when that immaterial part leaves the material part, the body dies. It is meant to be a permanent union. And so the only way that God can get me out of the state of being in the flesh is that I have to die. Flesh doesn't die. I die. And so Christ dies for me, and as I put my faith in Christ, God identifies me with the death of Christ and says, I died with Christ, Romans chapter 6. Having died with Christ, I can now be removed from the condition, the state of being in flesh, in the flesh, to now being in the Spirit. And because I am in the Spirit, the Spirit is in me. So John chapter 14 tells us, that when Jesus leaves, I will send you another person like me, who will not just be with you, he will be in you. And John chapter 16 says, and this is to your advantage, it is better. And this is a permanent relationship. We also know that this speaks of identity. This relationship really is the foundation of who I am. If I am in the flesh, 
then I am fleshly. And, and everything that characterizes my life is, is what is true of the flesh. And what characterizes the flesh? Romans 8 will tell us, death. Death. And everything that I do has the marks of death on it. As long as it is Charlie doing it, independent of God. But if the Spirit of God lives in me, and I'm allowing Him who lives in me to work in me and to do what only He can do, then what will characterize my life will be true of Him. My identity will be what is true of Him. And Romans 8 will tell us that what is true of Him is life and peace. Life and peace. As the Spirit of God is allowed to work in me and to rule in my life. Life and peace. And in that, in that identity also comes security. Even for those who are in the flesh. It is a very secure place to be. That's why it becomes increasingly difficult oftentimes for older people to receive Christ. Because, man, everything that you've taken security in, you're saying no to. And so it, it, it can feel very unsure, very uncertain, that here I'm, I'm, I'm jettisoning everything that I once took pride in, everything that was my identity, and I am now changing identity. And so there can be insecurity and even some fear that comes into a person's heart as he begins to contemplate, should I put my trust in Jesus? He instinctively understands this is a change in identity because I am in, even though he doesn't know these terms, I am in the flesh. And to put my faith in Christ is to change identities. And I am drawing some security from being in the flesh. Just as the believer draws his security from being in Christ, in the Spirit. But here's the thing that we, they don't have in common. In the flesh and in the Spirit, though they have much in common, there's one thing they do not have in common. We know from the end of Romans chapter 6 that there is no benefit from being in the flesh. And there is every benefit from being in Christ, in the Spirit. No benefit from being in that relationship of in flesh. But there is every benefit to being in Christ. Now, having established in means in, and I hope I've established that, there are some other things here to, to contemplate about the nature of this relationship. And if you'll go back to John again, and, and look at, at just a couple more statements that Jesus makes about the Holy Spirit. John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me. That is His primary role. He will come. I am going to send Him to you. He will be with you. He will be in you. And what's He going to do when He gets there? He's going to bear witness of me. He was not going to bear witness of Himself. Not directly, more indirectly. His primary role, His one objective, is to witness, to bear witness of Jesus Christ. That is the primary thing that He does. So, you find a believer... 
And his whole life is about something other than Christ. Then that believer is clinching the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because this is the, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His primary ministry is to bear witness concerning Jesus. If I'm always bearing witness about my inadequacy and my weakness, then I am clinching the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because that's only half the story. See? The Spirit bears witness of Jesus. And in doing so, of His sufficiency, of His grace, of His power. It's more than just talking about what I can't. But who Jesus is and what He can. If it's about numbers and growth or about what we've attained and what we're doing, we are quenching the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness of Jesus. And then He says in chapter 16, verse 7, we read this verse, I will send Him to you. And then verse 8, And when He comes... He even has a ministry in the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So this is, a, and apparently, I mean, just to take, him for what, take it for what Jesus is saying, if this is in a, in a different way, in a different sense than before He comes to indwell believers. When He comes in the sense of indwelling you, He is going to convict the world. His indwelling presence results in conviction. Now, do I get convicted by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But this is a ministry that the Spirit of God has through us as He comes to live in us. People are going to get convicted. Will they get condemned through the Holy Spirit who lives in us? No. Remember, because again, particularly with, with dealing with other Christians, when I'm dealing with other Christians, if they are hearing condemnation, they are not hearing the Spirit of God through me. Because Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Will they hear conviction? I do. We all do. Will there be reproof? Correction? Yes, 2 Timothy 3.16, we looked at last week, that the Scriptures are the Word of God, and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And as the Spirit of God is working in our lives, in harmony with the Word of God, then those things are going to be happening. But that is conviction. That is not condemnation. Will the Spirit of God work in my life to respectfully, Gently and yet uncompromisingly communicate that there is only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. That He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father through Him. Will they therefore feel condemned in their lost state by the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. The unbeliever will find as he hears the Spirit of God, that the state that he is in is a state of condemnation. The Spirit of God will say that to the unbeliever because he loves him and doesn't want him to stay there. And it is the truth.
So the Spirit will convict. How does He do that? Through His indwelling presence of the believer, through the Word of God, but it still doesn't get down to the nuts and bolts necessarily. How does He do it? We know He uses words, but all of these things, it's still the Spirit of God. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Spirit of God communicates with the Spirit of man. And so even though He's doing it through His indwelling presence in you and I, even though He's doing it through His word that is spoken that the unbeliever might hear, it is still the Spirit communicating to the Spirit. Romans 8 is going to say the same thing about the Spirit communicating with the Spirit. Still here in chapter 16 of, of John, it says in verse 13, And He, the Spirit of truth, when He comes, will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He shall take of Mine and shall disclose it to you. All the things that the Father has are Mine, therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Some would limit this only to the Apostles. And saying that this refers only to the inspiration of the Scripture as these people were writing down, that this, particularly the Gospels, that the Spirit of God was causing them to remember the things that Jesus did and said during His three-year ministry on earth. I have no doubt that that's true. I don't think there's any way to account for, 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 the, for the expansive um, recollection of what Jesus said except that it was the ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing to remembrance the things that Jesus had said. But to limit this only to those 11, Paul being a 12th, I think, personally, it's not in the text. And, and what I sense from the tone of Scripture, and I remember discussing this with one of our professors in seminary, was, you know, and he was saying, and I, and I, and I was comforted by it, he says, you can either read these statements as pertaining only to a select group of people, or you can read them as being normative for all of Christianity. He took them as being normative. I do. And I think it's been the experience of most people throughout these 2,000 years of church history that we have, it is the experience of the believer that in ways that we may not be able to fully articulate, the Spirit of God lives in us, and He is communicating to us. He is communicating specifically Christ to us. Where we grow to know Him more intimately, more personally. And we can say as our lives move along that I know Him better today than I did when I first came into relationship to Him. Do I know His Word better? Yes. But it's more than that. It's not just an academic or intellectual knowledge of His Word. But we come to know Him personally. And the Scriptures tell us this is by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That who comes and He bears witness of Jesus. He glorifies Christ. Now let's go back to Romans 8. Again, the main points here, very simple. Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit, indwell the believer. And are at work in the believer. Therefore, so then, we are not obligated to the flesh. But he has a lot more to say. And now, particularly, the ministries of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling the believer. What is he doing? 
verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's the first one. That the spirit of God, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Even though there is this principle of sin and death, which is in me, I do not have to be victim to it because of the greater law, the greater principle of the person of the Spirit of God who lives in me. He sets me free from the law of sin and death. There are so many things here, we're already running out of time. I would just, my prayer, even as I'm talking, is just that God would just really communicate these things to us. Think on these things. That the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, by His activity, He Himself sets me free from the law of sin and death. Nothing else will set me free. Only He can. And He lives in me to do so. Not from its presence, from its power. I do not have to be subject to the law of sin and death. In my thinking, in my choices, in my actions, I can live free because of the greater law of what is true of God Himself who lives in me. And that is life in peace. Second thing, Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the requirement of the law? Holiness. Holiness. I can never attain holiness on my own. But the Spirit of God has come to live in me. And what I could not do, God does. God did it. God did it, and God is doing it. Through the Spirit of God who indwells us, it is fulfilled not by us, verse 4, but fulfilled in us. God's Spirit lives in the believer. To fulfill the requirement of the law, holiness. Not to annul the requirement, not to set it aside and say it doesn't pertain anymore, but he himself fulfills this requirement in us who walk according to the Spirit. Now, let me just pause here because Paul's going to take a parenthesis in this section. And he's going to start talking about according to. And how you can live according to the flesh, even though you are not in the flesh. Very simply, it just means that I can live my life as though nothing has changed. And we all know that's true. Even though I am saved, I have been declared righteous, I have been made a new creature, and the Spirit of God, who is the Holy Spirit, lives in me. I can live as though nothing has changed. In fact, it can be so convincing that you can begin to think I was never saved to begin with. You'll look at me and say, He is in the flesh. 
Paul never describes in this passage a Christian as being in the flesh. But he says, you as a Christian can live according to the flesh. You can't be in two states at once. Either you are in the spirit or you are in the flesh. And if you are in the spirit, you can never again be in the flesh. It is a permanent state. But you can live like it. So much so that nobody else could ever know that you were a believer. Nobody else could know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Is that to say that you yourself don't know? No. But it means I can convince everybody else that I don't belong to him. I had a friend who was very close to, and he went nuts and um, walked out on his, on his family and children. I think I've told this story probably in the past, and I was sitting in, in um, senior theology class, senior um, ethics and theology, some class that the, that the president of the school taught, and he started saying, I know a man who went nuts, walked out on his family and everything, and, and, um, and this guy, and he goes, that man, he makes this statement, that man has no justification for saying that he is a believer in Jesus Christ. Whoa. So I got up, I, w- I went and talked to the professor afterwards, president of the school, and I said, listen, I know a guy whose life is exactly what you just said. And he goes, I know you do, that's who I'm talking about. <laughs> and I didn't know that he knew I knew the guy, you know. And, and I go, are you telling me that guy is not saved, that he's not a Christian? And he goes, no, I believe he's a brother in Christ. But I'm telling you that there is no way that that man, in the way that he is living, can prove to another person he's saved. Because all evidence is gone. I believe the Holy Spirit's in him. I believe he's a child of God. But I'm telling you, he is living such a convincing life otherwise that there is no way that you can look at that man's life and say that what he professes to be true is actually true. Now, I know that man, and I've kept in some touch with him for the last 30 years. And I know that he would say, because he has said, that my heart condition has been miserable. Does he look miserable on the outside? Nope. Looks pretty happy. And he's, he's done everything he can to communicate a life of success. But in his more honest moments, and he has been at times very honest, he said, my heart has been miserable. I can't see that, but it's there which I would expect, because if he's a child of God, and he's quenching the ministry of the Holy Spirit within him, then he's going to be miserable. Because this is his identity, you see? His identity is that he's in Christ. And yet there's nothing about his life that looks like he's in Christ, and that Christ is in him. The Spirit of God sets us free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of God fulfills the requirement of holiness in us. And the Spirit of God has a mindset, His own mindset, His own nature, and what He produces in us is a mindset as well of life and peace. Verses 5 and 6. For those who are according to the flesh. This is speaking of the person who is in the flesh, and he is according to the flesh, the unbeliever. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, and that's you and I. If you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you, and you are by nature, by identity, according to the Spirit, even though you may not be living that way. 
He sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God orients us to life in peace. And as I live according to the Spirit, by the means of the Spirit, from the agency of the Spirit, then my mind will be one of life in peace. Not to say that there's not going to be the aberrant thoughts that come in and stuff, because again, the Spirit of God does not destroy the presence of sin, but rather He sets me free from the power of sin. And that I will continue to find the grace of God to come back as I live according to the Spirit to that place of peace. Jesus Himself was troubled at heart. The disciples at different times were very troubled and weighed down. We can come into times of great emotional and mental turmoil. But the Spirit of God is in the believer always leading him to life in peace. For the unbeliever, it's not going to happen. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death. Verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, the unbeliever, cannot please God. Because everything about his life, it's not that God looks at him and says, I hate that person. No, Jesus died for that person. He loves that person. But everything that person does, he does from himself, independent of God. He's alienated from God. And so God says, I love you, and I appreciate everything that you're trying to do. But as long as it's you doing it, don't you understand? It is always going to fall short of who I am and what I require. And I'm a holy God. So as much as I love you and care for you, as much as I may appreciate the motivation of your heart, see, unbelievers can be zealous for God. He says, that zeal is not going to save you because you're apart from me. And I am perfect and I am holy. You cannot attain to what I am. And all of your effort to try, as zealous as you are, it still comes down to you trying to be what I only can be. You have to yield to me. And if you refuse to, it's pride saying that I can be as God would require of me to be. Either you have a very small God or you have a very proud heart. And I believe it's why God says, humble yourselves. Only God can be what God is. So what does this tell us about the believer in contrast? He does. By the Spirit of God, the Spirit is active in him to surrender to God's demands, to what God would say into his word. He does subject himself to the word of God. He is pleasing to God. And he belongs to God. Verse 9, However, you, the Christian, are not in the flesh. You can act like it sometimes, But you will never be in the flesh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's the simplest explanation or definition the Bible gives of a Christian. If you have Christ in you, you belong to Christ. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, you do not belong to Him. Does He love you? Yes. Did He make you? Yes. But can you truly call upon Him as Father? No. You do not belong to Him if He is not in you. Now, this is experiential, it's personal. We are tempted to call it subjective. And we don't like the word subjective because subjective means to us not quite as true. If something is true for me, subjectively, then it's not necessarily true for you. So if I'm having, um, a, if I'm having a fever and I'm burning up and I'm going, man, it's hot. You're going, I'm not hot. Well, my fever is subjective. But it's not, therefore, less real. It is a reality. It is a truth, even though it may be true only to me at this time. So one person has said, every truth is absolute. If it's true, it is absolute. It doesn't have to apply to you to be true, and it's still true. And this is a truth. Christ in you. And it would seem that Paul is asking us to ask the question. Is Christ in me? Ultimately, no one else can answer that question for you. But you should be able to answer it. Now, I can tell you the objective truth. That whoever confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. That is the objective truth. And so I can ask you, have you, according to John 1.12, received Christ as your Lord and Savior? And as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. So if you've received Him, if you confess Him to be your Lord, to be the one who has risen from the dead, as we've confessed this morning with communion, then objectively, as God would say in His Word, I can tell you on that basis, you are a child of God. But God has a second witness. The objective truth and the personal experience. They are both truths. And God always has more than one witness. And He has a personal witness. And that is His indwelling Spirit. And where He's going with this is that He wants us to be able to say categorically, Christ is in me. And if you cannot say that, then according to this passage of Scripture, you categorically do not belong to Him. It's that sure, folks. We ought to be able to say, categorically, even though I cannot prove it to another person necessarily, but I know with all my being, Christ is in me. So much so, and nobody else hears this voice, but the person himself, that you hear, verse 16, the Spirit himself bearing witness with your spirit, spirit to spirit, 
that you are a child of God. The objective word of God I can point you to. And I can say, if you are having trouble of whether or not you belong to Christ, God's word says. And I can say, do you believe this? And I can say then, yes, on the authority of God's word, it is true of you. But I cannot tell you what only the Holy Spirit can say to you. And that is verse 16. Does Jesus dwell in you? And if he does, the Spirit of God will cry out within you, Abba, Father. I am the child of God. Folks, this is not, again, to put guilt on anybody. This is just the truth of God's Word. We need to ask ourselves this question. Is Christ in me? Is the Spirit of God bearing testimony to me throughout my Christian life that I am a child of God? If that has never been your personal experience, then I would venture to say on the basis of God's word, you are not his. We ought to be able to say, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are his. Christ is in me. I may not feel like Jesus is in me. He doesn't say, you will feel like Jesus is in you every moment of the day. I am thankful it doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you will only experience triumph and never experience defeat. He doesn't say, you will never have a bad thoughts, you'll never lose your temper, you'll never be tempted. He doesn't say that. But what he does say, if Christ is in you, then the Holy Spirit will confirm throughout your entire life that you are a child of God. Even though you may not be acting like it. And he doesn't say, straighten up or I'm going to tell you you're not my child anymore. He says, you're my child. Straighten up. This is not how a child of God acts. You're my child. This is not true of you. Every time I move into sin, the Spirit of God is saying to me, this is not pleasing to me. And this is not who you are. You belong to me. This is not you. This is not what my child does. It's the ministry of the Spirit. We'll have to come back to this passage next week because there's so much more here. But folks, I, you know, again, I just, this is the main thing here. The main thing here is that Christ is in the believer. And the Spirit of God is at work. And one of the principal things that He does within us is to bear witness of the fact that we are His. And by His indwelling presence and His work within us, we are under no obligation to the flesh. Sin and death do not have to rule over us because of His indwelling presence and His activity. Let me close us in prayer.